You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire. I'm a coach. I work in schools with teachers and senior leaders to support them to improve their well-being. Welcome to this episode, everyone. Before I tell you about today's interview, I just wanted to say thank you for the kind comments that I received about last week's show. Um, I had some really nice comments about how helpful it was and what great CPD it was. So thank you for those. And I also wanted to say hello to our listeners all around the world. I use um, Podbean and that gives me some statistics on the show. And it turns out that we are being listened to in some very far-flung places. We had a a listener in the Philippines and someone listening in Madagascar last week. So that's absolutely amazing that we've got a worldwide audience. So thank you if you are listening in a small corner of the globe. Welcome to the show. This week I am interviewing an amazing woman and she is Benny Cara and she is currently, um, she's an English teacher and she's a deputy head teacher at a high school in Derby where she's responsible for teaching and learning and the curriculum and in November last year she published her book which is The Little Guide for Teachers on Diversity. Now, I invited Benny onto the show after talking to Jill Berry a few shows back and we ended up talking about diversity in schools and how it has a link to well-being and I felt a little bit out of my depth talking about diversity because I'm really not an expert in that field and having read why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, which I would highly recommend to you. I'd become particularly uneasy about my own approach to equality and diversity. As a woman uh, with children and an ambition to become a school leader, I obviously I had experienced prejudice and some difficulties in gaining the promotions that I wanted to gain, but I knew that that was nothing compared to some other minority groups and so I wanted to ask Benny onto the show um, so that she could provide her perspective on diversity and equity and so that she could answer probably many of the questions that you have um, or the things that you need to know that you might want to find out more about with regard to diversity and equity in education. One of the things that um, Benny says in the interview is how important it is to keep learning about people. And diversity and equity are really important. Um, they're really important elements of what we do in schools. And as leaders, we have a responsibility to remain up to date and, and to become knowledgeable about these ideas and about the current thoughts on diversity and equity and good practice. So this episode is really for you to understand more 
about diversity and equity and how you can promote it better in your schools. So here's the interview with Benny. I am sure that you are going to enjoy it and that you are going to learn an awful lot today that you can then use in your practice as school leaders. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Benny Cara, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. How are you today? I'm all right. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Um, can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are, and your background and what you do now? Absolutely. So I am Benny. I have been a teacher for 18 years. Um, I'm an English teacher by trade. I'm currently a deputy head teacher responsible for uh, teaching and learning at a, a secondary school in Derby. Um, and recently I've been doing lots of work around diversity in the curriculum and uh, in November last year I published um, a small guide for teachers, a little guide for teachers uh, on diversity in schools. Um, so lots of thinking around that. Um, but yes, that, that's who I am. So um, one of the, the reasons I got you on the show is because I, I spoke to Jill Berry a while back and we, we were talking about diversity um, and I didn't want to be making generalizations about things. And I, I, I was recommended to, um, to ask you to come on the podcast by Jill. So can you tell us a little bit, I suppose I'm throwing you, you in at the deep end a bit here, but um, how can we make sure that there's more equity in schools? Because I, I think like particularly in the next 10 years, because really very little I think has changed over the last 10 years probably and the pace of change has also been too slow so how would you recommend people go about changing things and maybe picking up the pace a little bit? I think there needs to be uh, a mandate from the kind of highest echelons of any institution. So if this isn't coming from an executive level, so your, your governors, your, your senior leadership teams or your MAT exec, um, it's very hard to do it from kind of grassroots up um, because, you know, there, there needs to be some impetus and some input from, from people who have the kind of decision making power. Um, and where people have been really successful at moving this forward is where there's been a whole scale commitment to diversity and, and change um, and looking at schools structurally. So you're, you're talking about the kind of almost HR processes, um, you know, application forms, websites, uh, who, who are the faces of your school? Um, you know, that that structural element needs the input from um, from senior leadership level and above um, so that's one area that I think schools can focus on where they are making um, kind of honest evaluations about what what the school values are and and how they're presented to the community um, whether they represent the community um, and I'm very aware that there are some very monocultural schools in, in the UK. Mm. And, you know, that's that's as expected. It's interesting um, because there are monocultural schools, but there are very multicultural schools. But often when you look at the profile of the staff in the multicultural schools, they don't represent the diversity amongst the students. I worked in a school in uh, Presswich in Manchester, which is very diverse, very multicultural. And yet the, the profile of the staff doesn't meet that yeah, and it's it's something I've been thinking about in the last couple of days. There was a um, a UCL IOE um, bit of research that was put out last week, um, and the statistic that really stands out is that forty six percent of schools 
in um in the country don't have any representation any BAME representation at all wow and 46 percent yeah and and that's I mean there are I think there are lots of reasons behind that yeah. you tend to find that BAME members of staff stick very closely to urban centres um where there are communities around them mm. um um that you know that they, they feel comfortable they belong in um and it's very hard to go out to places where actually there's no one else who looks like you um and you know you there's the fear I guess of you know will I be will I belong there will I feel like I fit in there uh, will they hire me in the first place um and you know you can can you? Do, I have been for job interviews. I went for one particular job interview in a um, almost entirely white school, um, a very very middle class school, I would say. And the question I was asking myself was, "Is this somewhere that I fit in?" Yeah. Um, and the question I was asked to interview, um, which I'm sure was an innocent question, was, "Why would somebody like you want to work in a school like this? You know, somebody who's worked in urban contexts." Um, why, why would you, why would you want to, what, what value do you bring here? Wow. Um, and I answered that question to the best of my ability, you know, children are children, they have needs. Um, and it isn't about, you know, whether my face fits, but, uh, funny enough, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny <laughs> to say that because, <laughs> because it, I suppose there's a vicious cycle, isn't there? If, if you don't have a multicultural staff, is it difficult then to appoint um from different cultures and to be more diverse in your appointments because people look at the profile of the staff and think actually maybe I'm not sure I want to work there but then the difficulty that you've got is that if young people from diverse backgrounds don't see and I suppose this is the same isn't it if they don't see diverse a diverse teaching population then number one they don't potentially want to go into teaching themselves when they get older because they've not got any role models and secondly they're missing role modeling in in other ways aren't they and young people are are missing out on experiencing diversity in that way too absolutely and it works in both contexts as well so if you are um, in a school where it's predominantly white children um you know and if you don't see any um black asian minority ethnic people in positions of responsibility um then then actually you're you're not seeing uh, those role models either so your perceptions mm-hmm. are entirely guided by where you do see them in jobs and you know it's damaging in in either context um but then you know we talk about emotional tax so a member of staff who's feels like you know they, they're going to go out there and go and put that application into a school where there's nobody else who looks like them um where the the outward facing material shows that there's nobody who looks like them that burden on that member of staff is quite high mm-hmm. um and, and you can imagine that that's something that's quite a big thing to take on you know you're you're presenting yourself as like the representative um of your your background your culture and even if you're not presenting yourself you're seen as you you could be seen as that couldn't you that could be quite a weight to take on as well yeah so you know regardless of whether you think it's important enough people will perceive you in a certain way and if you're the only person who represents in a particular way then you know that that's a that's an emotional tax that you can't really avoid um uh, I, I don't imagine that there are many situations where there's vitriol or but you know I, I have heard stories of schools where uh, this is particularly supply teachers of color have gone into schools and and left because actually there's been monkey noises in the corridor 
and you know that that's something that you that is a reality in some of our schools um and you know things are either dealt with or they're not but i imagine if you are a um a, a minority ethnic teacher going into that space there's always that fear um that that might happen um or you know whether it's that blatant or something more subtle you're you're on the defensive you're 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 saying okay well i'm, I'm guarding myself against that um and people do feel the, the need, I think, in teaching to present themselves as OK and coping. Um, and, and sometimes there's a lot going on behind the scenes um, in terms of your perception of yourself, your perception of your position, your perception of your own safety. I'm really interested in this idea of, of emotional tax. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is exactly? I guess the best way to describe it is the price you pay for some of your protected characteristics. So if you are, if you have a disability, if you know you're on the, um, you identify as LGBT plus, you know, you are in a position where you may feel like you are guarding against um, perceptions of you. Um, and the toll that that takes on you over time can be quite a burden. Um, it's, it's exhausting thinking, you know, how does, how does this part of me belong here? Um, is it going to be an issue? Am I going to struggle? Is somebody going to disapprove? Am I going to be treated badly? I think in particular, um, when you identify as LGBT+, because there's such high stakes involved, um, and there's been some very public uh, stories about kind of teachers who are out in schools or schools that have said you know no outsiders the Andrew Moffat campaign for example and the controversy in local communities about you know what we choose to teach about LGBT plus I think if you're a person a member of staff um, who identifies that way actually you know you can't help but thinking hang on this is this is my identity this is am I going to be um, comfortable in this environment am I going to be safe do I feel like this is a space where I can flourish so in terms of well-being as well it, it's a it's a it's an additional burden isn't it because teaching and leadership they're mm. stressful enough without having the added burden of mm. the consideration of of all those things that you that you might mm. be concerned about um so in terms of supporting um people from all different backgrounds what would you advise schools to do I think, you know, like I sort of started talking about earlier, those structural things about um, values and how you present your school, that process is really important. You know, the outward facing message of this is who we are as a school. There are no outsiders. Um, these are This is our commitment to diversity and equity uh, and inclusion. Um, this is our commitment to representation. Um, I think, you know, that can lift uh, that bit of that emotional tax off of a member of staff who may or may not want to work there um, and you know it's little things like that feeling safe that you've got a leadership team that says well if something happens to you or take the I believe you approach you know and as opposed to oh it was banter or oh you know they're kids they don't really understand um, so schools can be quite open about their values and, and there have been some really great examples of schools that have put it in their reception area we don't accept homophobia we don't expect accept uh, gender uh, based discrimination that kind of thing uh, so that's part of it but then there's also the the issue of you know how do you create 
um, individuals for our society that kind of understand these issues. And that comes through our teaching, that comes through our um, curriculum. And so when we talk about what we teach and how we choose to teach it, consideration about representation is important. Um, to have the discussions around what it means to be black or Asian or minority ethnic in the UK, what it means to be LGBT+, what it means to have a disability, and in particular with hidden disabilities, because I think that's an area that doesn't get touched very much in the curriculum or just generally um, in our profession. I, I was thinking about the what you were saying about the decision making and systems and I, I think it's difficult sometimes because leadership teams and governing bodies tend to be white middle class, pr predominantly white middle class. And obviously there's there's an unconscious bias there, isn't there? Um, so like try as you might, you, you're still bringing those unconscious biases with you. So how can we do things differently I'm thinking about in terms of, like you're saying, to do with mission statements and things like that. But also, you mentioned before, like application processes and interviews, and um, how can we do things differently so that unconscious bias doesn't prevent us from making progress in terms of diversity and equity? It's a, unconscious bias is a really tough term in some ways because. Um, I recognise that it is the established term to use and when we talk about uncon unconscious bias a lot. Um, I have an issue with it and lots of people have issues with it because it sometimes takes the responsibility off the individual to, to kind of recognise their bias. Well, it's not my fault because it's a, it's an unconscious thing. I didn't right, mean yeah. to have that, thing, mm. uh, that idea about someone. But, you know, the, the act of um, educating oneself about the issues surrounded, pr surrounding protected characteristics is particularly important. You know, in the same way that we would learn about uh, a new book that we were teaching or a, a scientific concept that we were teaching teaching you are leading a school you know there are there are areas to do with your understanding of people um, and your understanding of society that that also needs to be kept up with so you know as as a school leader it's my responsibility to make sure that I understand the issues around hidden disabilities or um, you know civil partnerships or marriage and pregnancy and so that act of constantly learning um, is something that we can't kind of get away from and I think a lot of people do stop you know, the idea, you know, we, we get into school leadership positions and we're dealing with the curriculum, we're dealing with the logistics, we're dealing with children every day, we're dealing with behaviour. The idea that we might have to continue with our professional development of our understanding of people sometimes gets left to last, that these organisations are run on people, um, you know, the children and the staff. So it, it should be more of an area of focus for people. But in it's certainly in terms of, you know, your processes, your HR processes, in theory, you know, your your HR processes could be really, really successful in that you've got a, a form that says what what characteristics do you have, your race, your sexuality, your, your disability status. Um, whether people are really, really sticking to the rules on not having that as part of the, the application process, I'm not always sure. Mm. Um, there are incidences being reported of uh, two people applying with the same application form uh, as a test, if you like, with two different names on it. So and, and one one person gets the the call back and the other one doesn't and it really yeah. depends on what name it is. So you know perhaps actually we're not being entirely honest with the fact that these aren't colorblind processes. They aren't they aren't um, characteristic blind processes. 
um, and and that we really need to take that a bit more seriously. Um, I mean, the, the, pro- the problem there is that you can go through the process of, of blind application, can't you? But when people walk into your school for an interview, then it's not it's not possible to to hide things about you that somebody might be prejudiced against, is it? No, it's not. And and actually, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna sound like I've had some terrible experiences over the years with interviews. I have, but um, but uh, you know, this is sort of incidental more than anything. Um, you know, I've walked into a job interview for a deputy headship, um, not the current one, obviously. And you know, there's been two sets of interviews going on that day: the deputy headship and this the long term supply for science or something um and the assumption has been that I'm there for the the supply job as opposed to um the deputy headship um and a, and a very embarrassed receptionist who says oh, oh sorry um you know and and that's just the kind of assumptions that people make when you walk through the door um the statistics show that you know and, and lots of research shows that people make decisions about fitting in and belonging in in very quickly at the start of interview processes um so yes if you have a a disability uh, a visible disability if you are um of a race that perhaps is unfamiliar to the local area uh, an accent that often gets um uh, noticed straight away actually yeah it's very hard to hide in that in that sense and i think that's why people in some cases don't disclose information about themselves mm-hmm. so um especially when it comes to disability because it's interesting that isn't it i i um in a school that I worked and I knew one of the the applicants for a post and I knew because I'd been um she trained in the school that I'd previously worked in and she was fantastic and she had an accent and I I I, and she didn't end up getting the job in the school that I was working and I I really do think that that had an impact Mm -hmm. on the way that she was perceived in the interview and potentially could have been a reason why she didn't get the job now I, I, I said unconscious bias and you said, you know, you, you do take issue with the phrase unconscious bias. So what 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 do you do about that? What what would you recommend people do? Because obviously we do have we, we've got a, we, we make assumptions about things, don't we, about all sorts of things. You know, you go and then you and, and often you correct you like you might correct yourself mm-hmm. and, and, and think, right that's not necessarily the case or whatever that might be what would you advise people do in terms of those assumptions that they make before we find out some strategies for how to deal with our unconscious biases i just want to tell you a little bit about our partner headteacherchat.com headteacherchat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school The aim of Headteacher Chat is to support headteachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. I think, you know, when you're 
you, know, you meet someone for the first time, it's very hard to stop some of the kind of unconscious thoughts or kind of, I suppose, subconscious thoughts that you have or perceptions that you have. Mm. But if you're constantly questioning your understanding of people and your understanding of someone that you've just met as opposed to running with those ideas you know that's when the cycle stops you know no one says that you could you're going to be entirely free of of any prejudice once you have unconscious bias training you know it doesn't work it's not it's not like a magic uh, no because we've, we've we've spent years haven't we with the media television mm. films you, try, you know potentially trying to convince us of certain things about certain groups of people um i think that's that's a bit that i was really interested in in the book um why i'm no longer talking to white people about race is that she talks about how we've been conditioned to mm. to believe certain things about certain people or groups of yeah. people and and that's very difficult isn't it when it's been ingrained in us for so long to think those things mm-hmm. to stop yourself from thinking them yeah. And, and you know, it's a hard process and an uncomfortable process to recognise that we might be having thoughts about a, a person or a group of people um, that isn't positive because of some mm-hmm. perception that you have, that you, you know, you've received some information about that isn't based on anything accurate. It's an assumption. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't go through that process. And, you know, discomfort is part of this process and acknowledging that you're, you know, if you're uncomfortable, you're probably going through quite a useful process because you're asking yourself some very tough questions. Um, and, you know, no one's perfect, you know, and, and these things don't go away overnight. Um, but one of the books that I read recently that I thought was really interesting was Sway by Dr. Pragya Agrawal. And she talks about unconscious bias in real detail. Um, and it's, you know, she talks about it from a kind of neuro, almost neurological perspective and it then links it to our kind of social actions. Um, so it's a really complex issue. And just the act of saying, I recognize that I will have unconscious bias in some way, shape, or form about some groups of people. That's the starting point, um, as opposed to I treat everyone equally. Everyone's my mate. I have like, you know, equal opportunities. That's all great. Um, almost starting from the model of, no, I, I probably am in the wrong about something or probably have made assumptions about something and received information that isn't accurate. How do I now go about correcting that in my actions? Um, how do I create an equitable environment for, for people? Because I suppose there's something a bit superior in in saying yeah I just look at everybody the same I don't I don't see colour I don't see disabilities or I don't you know I don't I don't see gender or whatever it might be there's a sense maybe that you've been a little bit superior if you if you take that attitude well it's certainly a kind of very blinkered attitude and and I guess it's the fundamental difference between feeling like you are uh, an advocate of equality or you know knowing that you're a, a an advocate for equity and those two words I think people need to know the difference between those two words equality is about treating people the same but sometimes that perpetuates existing social injustices because people aren't the same fundamentally we don't have the same experiences and we don't have the same starting points Um, and you have to acknowledge that some people will need more intervention uh, more support more of an understanding than others um, because perhaps they have a protected characteristic that has, has given them a completely different starting point. And I think when people say, well, we're all equal, you know, what about International Men's Day? Um, <laughs> it's not a helpful way of thinking um, because equality 
is fundamentally kind of erasure of some of the issues. It's really interesting that you say I've just read Caitlin Moran's new book. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Is it called How to Be a Woman or is that the original one? Have you that's read the, it? That's the, is that the original one? Yeah, yeah. Um, so she she comes back to it 10 years later and her nephew moves in, uh, like moved in with them. And she's obviously a huge feminist. And, and he starts to put some of those ideas that boys tend to tend to put and but then she but then she starts to talk about actually how how he is um I don't want don't want to use the word disenfranchised really but as a 24 year old male you mm-hmm. know there there are there are things that that go against you there are you know you you can't just say oh because you're white male you're so mm-hmm. privileged and you you know you've got everything mm-hmm. going for you and I think this in terms of well-being in schools I think one of the things that constantly comes up is that it's not a one size fits all. You mm. know, well-being is about individuals. Mm. And I think it's really important for people to understand this, that mm. you can't just say, like, I don't see, I don't see colour, I don't, and 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 think that that's a way of saying, so therefore I treat everybody the same. Yeah, yeah. Because it I think you know coming back to your point about you know you know we can't say that um just because you're white and priv- uh, white and male doesn't mean you um are more privileged than somebody else i think you actually can say that you know there's lots of studies that show that you know regardless of social class regardless of um socioeconomic background actually being white and male is a position of privilege um it might not feel like it to an individual and in, mm-hmm. under individual circumstances but on a kind of social structure kind of level sociological kind of level there is actually a, a high level of privilege there um but I, I do think you're right about this idea that you know you've from a well-being perspective our duty to staff and students in school is to kind of recognize those starting points and recognize um the the relative privileges of different characteristics because mm-hmm. even within the protected characteristics you've got relative privilege um and 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 kind of educating ourselves around that uh, that's eye-opening in itself and it, it's not about saying you know one person is better off than another it's recognizing how that affects the kind of uh, treatment they'll receive um what the general trends are about how they're treated um over time so rather than taking it down to an individual circumstances start thinking about it more sociologically um and in terms of um as part of the kind of structures of our society and and i think it, it's I think that that was the point I was trying to make when I talked about, you know, the 24 year old male mm-hmm. um, and the idea of, of the individual perspective, mm-hmm. because an individual's perspective can make a lot of difference as well, can't it? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, when you, you, fundamentally you can't, there is no one size fits all in this. Um, but, you know, we, we have to take somebody's experience um, at face value and say you know this is how you feel um, and and we need to address that whether that's a, a reality whether that fits into the kind of narrative is it is relevant you're dealing with an individual at that point um, and you know they deserve the care and attention that they need for whatever issue that, that they have um, I think when it comes in when it comes to schools you know I don't think we take enough time to think about our teachers as individuals with individual circumstances I think there are structures in place but they sometimes kind of miss some key areas um 
you know, I talked about hidden disability um, a while back. And if you are a an individual who, for some reason, hasn't disclosed a hidden disability for fear of um, the perception of that disability and that perception of you as a person, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that we've got to have better ways of having conversations around things like that. Um, and we have to be quite vocal about our commitment to um, equitable processes and equitable treatment around uh, hidden disabilities in particular. So how can we how can we do that in schools? How can we support a more open culture? Um, well, I mean, certainly, you know, you know people may disclose um, information on uh, the characteristics form of, of, of applications. People may choose to mention it in interview and I think our reactions to those things are important you know the questions that we ask about it the um the I suppose there's a, a level of neutrality needed quite often you know you hear of people saying well I disclosed this at interview but I was asked how many days I'd had off uh does it affect my ability to work that kind of thing and then there's a kind of almost judgment uh, sort of creeping fear coming into that question yeah. um and you know whether it's uh uh, seen as something that you should do or you shouldn't do people have been asked that question and you think well actually if you're a member of staff going in and saying you know I have an auto autoimmune disorder like Crohn's disease and you disclose that how, and the reaction is okay well how does that affect your ability to work that's not a that's not a positive start to that that conversation um, you know the fact that somebody has disclosed that that you know they've applied for the job suggests that they have the ability to do that job regardless but they are disclosing because they will need equitable treatment in some way and that might be about understanding about days when um or, or weeks in fact when when working becomes impossible um so i guess it's it's about being aware of uh, sort of immediate reactions to information um but also while uh, people are at work uh, making sure that they have access to people to talk to is there a coach is there a mentor um is there uh, access to the head if you know you, you need to be able to discuss time off um and and is that done in a, a sensitive way as opposed to yes you've told me i'm aware of that information thank you you know without any next steps um put in place or support put in place and i suppose it's important as a leader to take the responsibility to go and find out what life is like for a person with that condition yourself. So what does that condition entail? So that you know, as a leader, that that person is not responsible for giving you the ins and outs of everything that, that might happen to them on a, on a daily basis as well. No, I think in some ways, you know, we talk about coming out um, in, uh, if you are LGBT plus, and, and actually, I think with disability, you, you have the same almost coming out particular interview mm -hmm. or in situations where you're introducing yourself to people, you, you're you're coming out as a person with a disability. And, and yes, that you feel then the need to either kind of reassure people that you are OK <laughs> um, and, you know, that, or, or to explain it. And yeah, you're right. So the simple act of I'm going to go away and look this up and I'm going to come be able to talk to you knowledgeably about it that's incredibly reassuring for somebody um, who has disclosed that information. I was, <laughs> I was thinking about um, like a lack of equity in schools. Um, what sort of impact can that have on a person 
from a from a particular group in terms of their ability to do their job you know i think you know everybody is an individual and some people will go through their careers um without any kind of effect or feeling any kind of um you know blow back about a protected characteristic i'm not saying this is something that is common to everybody but there will be people who experience either you know racism sexism transphobia homophobia uh a kind of disabled disabled attitudes that kind of thing and you know the I suppose the act of constantly feeling like you are a the pioneer for any information about this particular protected characteristic um, that you may be at risk from abuse you you may be at risk of like you know uh, that kind of whether it's um, deliberate or not this idea that you might not progress in your career because of it that can take a toll just on terms of your your, your self-confidence and your self-esteem. And, you know, you want to be able to feel like you will be judged on your own merits. But because we have this understanding that people have unconscious biases, you know, if you have a protected characteristic, it may be there underneath the surface that you think, actually, is this going to be an issue if I apply for a job? Is this going to be an issue if I make a complaint? Is this going to be an issue if I say a child has, has said something that I was uncomfortable with? And you're constantly sort of thinking about it. You're constantly percol- percolating on it. And, and and that's not healthy, you know, because you've got a lot to think about as yeah. teachers. That's the, emo- that's the emotional tax that you were referring to before, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think like the, you talked about curriculum before and the only way to progress is through educating people isn't it and when when I think about my own education I didn't learn anything about diversity I mean I'm 44 so I went to school in the 1980s and early 90s it's not that long ago is it and and I didn't learn about significant um BAME figures in history I didn't learn about sexuality or gender issues Uh, we didn't do anything there was nothing on the curriculum that I did about disability and and that is why I guess the prevailing information is from the media and film and tv and that is controlled by Mm. outside sources that potentially have have a different agenda so to speak So how do we go about educating our children better than we were educated ourselves? And I think this is one of the reasons I I sometimes feel embarrassed and a bit awkward and ashamed about my own knowledge of these issues because I'm not educated enough in in that respect. Obviously, I've I've read books and I've tried to, Mm -hmm. to do things, but I feel like, you know, I've missed out there on on being educated and it's caught it it, it's not a nice feeling to be in that position where you know I am a very liberal broad-minded person but I don't want to offend anybody Mm. and and I feel like sometimes because my education has been so limited I do risk offending people and it would never ever be something that I would do consciously but so so how do we First of all, how do we educate young people so that in the future we, we, we're in a much, you know, we can be more multicultural, we can be more accepting and we can have more equity? And how do we educate staff within schools as well? Because that's a big that's a big thing as well, isn't it? There's, there's never yeah. any time for CPD anyway, is there? <laughs> Let's face it, really, for the for the good stuff. 
So two uh, huge questions there. <laughs> Let me deal with the, the fact that you were talking about, you know, our own education. I mean, I went to school in in inner city Leicester. Um, it was 99% ethnic minority kids and we didn't study uh, disability, sexuality. And obviously, you know, when we were at school, Section 28 was still in force. Um, mm, and so, yeah. you know, actually, so in some cases it was just restricted. So we can't feel guilty about that. That was part of a, 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 a strategic uh, effort by the government to, to kind of shut that down. Well, I'm sorry, I'm um, sorry to interrupt you as well. I, I went to school in Bolton and there is yeah. a, a high, a high um, ethnic minority uh, population in Bolton. Obviously, <laughs> you know, the mills in Lancashire and, yeah. you know, we've we've got a big multicultural population yeah. but i i didn't learn anything about that i didn't learn anything about the local history and why why we had a huge immigrant population yeah. in our town I, I, well i certainly didn't learn that in of, Leicester, you, know. you know friends a multicultural yeah. group of friends but yeah no no I sense know. of why that was Right. And, and I think that's where actually the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that there were gaps and we try and fill those gaps, you know, through educating ourselves as individuals around local histories and, mm. and uh, reasons for migration. And we do that work because we're interested. Um, but I think I want to talk to the idea of kind of offence. And I think you know that that comes up so much when I talk to people about diversity. You know, I don't want to offend. Yeah. And I think we've almost got to bite the bullet and say, you know, there might be times when you say something that's a, that someone perceives as offensive and that's OK, um, because at that point you apologise and say this is due to the fact that I don't know. And I'm asking you now, what, you know, what is it that I could do differently next time? How do I how do I avoid this issue in the future? You know, people say, well, I don't know what to, to call a, a thing. I don't know that have the language for that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I always say, well, actually, you keep the dialogue open you know you don't shame someone for not knowing uh you you call people in and you say actually let's have this conversation then because you know you you haven't had this conversation before and, and yeah if nobody's told you yeah and you don't that, know yeah, do you, can't you blame yourself and I think people tiptoe around the issue of diversity because they don't want to say the wrong thing and actually nine times out of ten asking questions uh finding out doing the reading you know you, you'll start to get a, a sense of what the the discourses are I think sometimes people feel embarrassed that they have to ask the question, don't they? Especially yeah. especially educated people. Yeah. I think people who already are well-educated and know a lot, they're not used to always being in a position of, actually, I, I don't know something here. Yeah. And sometimes there's a bit of embarrassment, isn't there, that they don't actually know. And it's almost yeah. like admitting, I haven't read the book on that. <laughs> No, absolutely. And, and and that's OK. You know, I often say people say to me, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to describe you or your ethnicity. And I'll say, well, just ask me. You yeah. know? Or and it, certainly with things like names, I'm very interested in, in why um, people have anglicised their names. And I have to point out at this point, my name, people assume that I've anglicised it. It's not. It's actually an adaptation of an Indian word. Right. Because um, <laughs> it's not my actual name. My actual name is Bansi. Um, but my mother has called me Benny for years and it means yeah. kind of like little sister. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, but I think a lot of our kids uh, don't want to say their names because teachers will get embarrassed when they get them wrong. And so the kids are sometimes protecting us um, from embarrassment. And, and actually, one of the things I always say is ask a child how to pronounce their name and tell them that it's not OK for them to shut their name away. Mm. Um, but, you know, you're right. Embarrassment and fear of offence plays a huge role in this um but the act of reaching out the act of building that bridge and saying actually i acknowledge there's a gap here 
that's that's a powerful moment between two people um and there's very few people who would say i'm still offended okay I didn't know and there are obviously things that you know if you do um you know something that's classified as the hate crime or you know it's significant persecution over time that kind of thing that's that's events causing that's that's the that's the serious stuff but a slip or uh, a lack of knowledge is not something that should put people off from having the conversations um and with the children I talk a lot I talk about it in my book and I talk about it in a lot of the training that I do there's an act of demystification that needs to happen so if you imagine the the media messages we get as adults and then multiply that by god knows what you know um considering kids have smartphones the internet um you know 24-hour news all all sorts of social media their perceptions of people are very much formed by their families and Facebook and and all of these organizations, you know, all of these platforms. Mm. And so if we are bringing, if children are bringing in perceptions of groups of people from outside, we have a responsibility to counter some of those dominant narratives in schools. So, you know, where the the dominant narrative in society is that a family is uh, a mom, a dad, 2.4 children, whatever the the statistic is these days. Um, Well, actually we talk about families and we talk about a variety of families and we make sure that that is in our curriculum and that we don't pay lip service to it by just shoving it into a PSHE lesson. Actually, we talk about families rather than parents and carers. um, And we don't make an assumption when we pick up the phone that it's gonna be mom or dad at home. Um, So, you know, there's that. Um, and then there's the content of what we teach. So are we showing students an accurate representation of the world that they live in and not just their country and not just their local community? Um, the accurate representation, representation being that, you know, Africa isn't uh, just a, a continent full of starving people um, and, um, you know, all sorts of kind of stereotypes. There are actually incredible things going on in African society, um, cities, uh, technology, innovation, creativity. Um, Are we actually representing those things in our curriculum as opposed to saying, or slavery happened and colonization happened. Um, So, you know, you see the person sitting across from you in the the classroom and you don't assume that they come from an oppressed people um, that only has that as a characteristic. You can see the multitudes of, um, and the, the layers of identity that they have. Um, And that's what creates long-term change. Um, The act of recognising, empathising and um, subject knowledge about particular groups. Um, And that has to be done on a daily basis. It can't be Black History Month. It can't be LGBT History Month. Um, You know, shoving it into a a kind of enclosed space almost says, look, these people are different and we're going to celebrate them now. It really should be a kind of, you know, plural histories, uh, global histories, woven into our curriculum over time so that we can see the contribution of people to British culture um, and also kind of origins who are the faces of your subject. Um, I often use the um, example of cartographers in geography Um, and if you type in cartographer you'll get a lot of white faces on Google Um, but if you type in um, Arabic uh, cartographer you'll start to get some of the histories of some of the early map makers and are we aware of that when we teach? That's a that's a responsibility for a teacher to go, actually, I don't know enough of my, about my own subject and I need to go and find out and broaden out, decolonize my understanding of um, my own subject that I teach. 
and that's a that's a, a big a big undertaking isn't it for for a school or for staff so um if you could just give school leaders one thing to do to start to be more diverse and to focus more on equity what one thing would you tell them to start with i'm biased because curriculum is my area of interest um i'd ask them to go and, and have a look at their curriculum and and work out where are the the missing voices um and the missing stories uh, to try to work out whether actually you've only got victim narratives um, around people of colour um, and you know where are the where's the positive representation of minority groups whether that's in terms of race you know uh, sexuality or disability um, is there positive representation of, of people um, in your curriculum uh, and then if I was to add something on a very kind of um, administrative level well take an objective look at what you're saying about your school and, and multiculturalism and uh, representation on your website, in your in your your um, prospectus, in any promotional materials, um, who's represented, um, and is there any way of addressing that? Thank you so much. I feel like we've just scratched the surface today. I feel like I've got so many more questions that I want to ask you that would probably lead us to talking late into the night, if I'm being honest. So maybe at some point in the future, you'll come back and, and speak about some specific issues for us and help us maybe look at, because I think it, we've, it's been a bit of a broad brush, yeah. so to speak, hasn't it today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I would be more than happy to come back and thank you for having me today and, and I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you. It's been it's been very, very useful for, for a lot of people, I, I, I would think. If people want to find you, if they want to read your little book or um, you've written lots of very insightful blogs that I've, that I've read, where can they find you? Oh, I'm usually lurking on Twitter. Um, so at Benny Cara, B-E-N-N-I-E-K-A-R-A. Um, the book itself is uh, published by Corwin Press. It can be bought from the Sage Education website or from um, large uh, multinational uh, corporations that sell books. Um, so. <laughs> I think you're allowed to mention them on the podcast. I don't think any, yeah, any, <laughs> any copyright people or anybody an like that. Buy it from an independent bookshop. Buy it from an independent bookshop. Yes, let's promote independent <laughs> bookshops. Thank you so much, Benny. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. I want to say a really big thank you to Benny for coming on the show and sharing her wisdom, knowledge and experience with us. I found that so insightful. And I think she's really helped us to gain a deeper understanding of diversity and equity and how we can do better in schools. I was shocked to hear some of the statistics that Benny mentioned about the ethnic profile of the staffing in schools and I went onto the internet and, and was having a look at that because I was so shocked and I was even more shocked to find out that I live in Greater Manchester and nearly 94% of teachers in this area are white and we really need to do something about this and I think if we listen to what Benny has to say and take our ideas on board and, and really get to grips with this, we can make a difference. Um, if you can recognise your own unconscious biases and 
accept that you have them, but constantly question yourself and your thinking about other people, then you can start to address some of the issues and you can start to do things differently. I was really interested in Benny's um, explanation of the difference between equality and equity. Um, with equality, um, referring to how people are treated the same, so everybody gets the same treatment, um, and how she really stressed that it's so important that we acknowledge that some people need more interventions, more support, more understanding than others, and that protected characteristics have given people different starting points and they've had different experiences in life. So equity is about treating people differently according to their individual needs. And this is something that keeps coming up. I, I said in the interview with Benny, it keeps coming up on every show that you are working in your schools with individuals and it's absolutely vital that that's how you treat your staff. So you get to know your staff as individuals and you treat them as individuals and different individuals need different things. And it comes back to asking the question um, that Helen Kelly talked about on a previous show, ask your staff what they need and get to know them as well. And one of the things that I think is important that Benny and I discussed is this idea that if you have people on your staff who are suffering from certain conditions or they have particular needs, find out about them, do your research. It's part of your learning. It's part of your CPD as a leader to be able to understand the different things that your staff may experience and then being able to do something about that in order to support them and that's that's really important so thanks to Benny it's really opened my eyes to to a lot of I think just addressing the different ways that I think but also thinking about the processes that you have in your school, the systems and processes, and really asking those questions about whether they promote diversity and equity. And if they don't, going away and doing something about it and asking people to contribute to that, to bring in all your policies, all your systems and all your practices really up to date so that they promote equity and diversity. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sure that we'll get Benny on again because I'm sure that there are still lots of questions that you want to ask about diversity and equity. And she did agree to come on the show, so I am going to hold her to that because I know that there'll be more that you want to find out. But thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again next week. Take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance.